Hello, Convention of State podcast listeners. Normally, we reserve this channel for audio versions of our live broadcast, COS Live and the Battle Cry with Mark Meckler. But as a bonus, we like to occasionally release some historic legacy audio for your enjoyment. Today's episode features a speech from Convention of State's co-founder Michael Farris given to a group of state legislators in the early weeks following the creation of the Convention of State's organization in 2013. And it's a real pleasure and privilege for me to introduce to you Mr. Michael Farris. Thank you, Kevin. I really appreciate all of you coming this afternoon. Um, this is an exciting opportunity to face a very difficult and desperate problem, that a nation that is simply out of control because of Washington, D.C. And so I want to start with a simple but important proposition. Washington, D.C. is addicted to power, spending, and debt. It has its own best interests as its highest priority, and no matter which party is in control, the addiction to a power and the abuse of the Constitution goes on unchecked. Now, on some venues, I'd have to prove these statements, but for this audience, I'm just going to proceed on the basis that you, like Thomas Jefferson, would hold that these truths are self-evident. Or for those more acquainted with Bart Simpson, you might say that to say that Washington, D.C. is broken as well, like duh. It's the same idea, different lingo for different eras. The public recognizes that there's a mess. The abysmal approval ratings for Congress are not without justification. Members of the public know that something is seriously amiss, but they really don't know how to analyze the specifics of the problem, nor is there a readily apparent solution. The crushing intergenerational debt, a government that spies on all of its citizens and justifies that spying as being in the public self-interest. Regulations that hamper business development and steal our freedom to create jobs. And the ever-present runaway government spending, not for the purpose of the long-range good of the nation, but the spending is simply done to re reassure the election of political incumbents. These are just the elements of the problem but they all arise from a common core. And that core is this. America, at least the Washington DC version of America, no longer believes and no longer follows its first principles. The founders believed in limited government. Washington DC believes in the growth of its power. The founders believed in genuine checks and balances between the branches. Washington DC practices collusion between the federal branches. No federal court has ruled since 1936 that Congress has violated its power to tax and spend. 1936 is the last time. And that year was the famous threat by FDR to increase the size of the Supreme Court to pack the court with a phalanx of New Deal advocates. The court then changed its mind about how to interpret the Constitution. And the New Deal was Congress can legislate as long as it pleased, so long as Congress then let the court manipulate the Constitution as it pleased. That's the deal. Presidents and executive branch agencies legislate despite the fact that in Article 1, Section 1, it says all legislative power is vested in the Congress of the United States. Congress uses an utterly anti-historical view of the General Welfare Clause to do indirectly what it could never do directly, that is, force state legislatures to adopt policies and laws that Congress wants. 
rather than the policies and laws that the state's own voters want? The Supreme Court repeatedly declares the following maxim, and they, they, this statement is at least in a dozen Supreme Court decisions, and I quote to you directly, the only check upon our exercise of power is our own sense of self-restraint. <laughs> Why is this being allowed to happen? Well, the people have forgotten the principle that our founders knew well. If the people do not force government to stay strictly within its delegated authority, government will become the master rather than the servant. The public distrust of government arises from a subconscious realization that we're slowly losing our status as sovereign citizens and are incrementally on the path to becoming subservient subjects to an all power, of an all-powerful government. If we think that the solution to the underlying problem is to adopt one or two specific policy proposals that will be wiser and more sustainable, we're sadly missing the point. The ultimate problem is not money. The problem is power. Washington, D.C. is exercising power that the founders never gave any government, much less the federal government. And don't take my word for that conclusion. Here's what the Supreme Court said. On, in a majority opinion in a case where they approved the exercise of power despite the fact that as you're going to see they said it was anti-historical for them to do so. Here's the direct quotation. This framework has been sufficiently flexible over the past two centuries to allow for enormous changes in the nature of the government. The federal government undertakes activities today that would have been unimaginable to the framers in two senses. First, because the framers would not have conceived that any government would conduct such activities. And second, because the framers would not have believed that the federal government, rather than the states, would assume such responsibilities. Yet the powers conferred upon the federal government by the Constitution were phrased in language broad enough to allow for the expansion of the federal government's role. For those of you keeping score, that was from the majority opinion in New York versus the United States in 1992, when they upheld this federal expansion of power. Ladies and gentlemen, Washington, D.C. is abusing its power and enslaving our children and our grandchildren in unsustainable debt. And the people are so frustrated with this abuse of power that serious people are starting to talk about concepts like nullification and even secession. Nullification is a vain pursuit. There are over 200 volumes of the F Code of Federal Registry, fe federal regulations, and there are hundreds of volumes of the United States Code. To effectively nullify it, you need to nullify all of the Code of Federal Registry and about 80% of the U.S. Code. And if you could get one state to nullify one law, that'd be a pretty good deal. It wouldn't be very effective, but it'd be a pretty good deal. And to get 50 states to nullify volumes and volumes is just simply a not a realistic idea. Secession is a worse idea. Sensible people know that secession is an act of political revolution that invariably leads to violence. Revolution can be justified under certain circumstances, but not when the Constitution itself gives us a path to stop the abuse of power by Washington, D.C. If we have a perfectly legal path to stop the abuses of the federal government and we refrain from using it, we have no basis to claim and certainly no more justification for even entertaining ideas like nullification or secession.
As the people in this room certainly know, at least in general terms, the founders gave us a solution to stop the abuses of a federal government that's drunk with power. Article 5 of the Constitution authorizes states enacting entirely on their own with no need for permission from Washington, D.C. at all to adopt constitutional changes which will definitively and effectively restrict the power of the federal government. The Harvard Journal of Law and Public Policy gives us the rel relevant historical background to Article 5, and I quote, On September 15th, as the convention was reviewing the revisions made by the Committee of Style, George Mason expressed opposition to the provisions limiting the power to propose amendments to the Congress. In other words, not Congress alone should have the power to propose amendments. According to the convention records, Mason thought that no amendments of the proper kind would ever be obtained by the people if the government, meaning the federal government, should become oppressive, as he verily believed would be the case. In response, Governor Morris and Elbridge Gerry made a motion to amend the article, that's Article 5, to reintroduce language requiring that the convention be called whenever two-thirds of the states applied for an amendment. There you have it. When the federal government becomes oppressive, George Mason's leadership ensured that the state legislatures would be the safeguards of the liberty of the people. State legislatures have the power to protect the liberty of the people, and I would respectfully suggest that you all also have the moral obligation to do so whenever the circumstance is warranted. And if this government is not the enemy of liberty and the agency of oppression, particularly when viewed in the light of our children and our grandchildren, I don't know what would suffice. Again, as the Supreme Court said itself over 20 years ago, the federal government is engaged in activities the founders would have never imagined any government pursuing, and especially not the federal government. And I respectfully submit that in the past 20 years, we've gone rapidly in the wrong direction, not in the right direction. It's time, it's high time, I just hope it's not too late. While it won't be easy to write all the detailed legislation that'll be necessary to walk us back from the, the brink of collapse, I think actually the structural changes that are necessary to save the republic are pretty easy to identify as long as we know the original design is intended by the founders. The vast majority of the abuses of power by the federal government are bound up in false interpretations of the General Welfare Clause and the Commerce Clause. So for just a few minutes, I'm going to take you inside my constitutional law class that I teach at Patrick Henry College and teach you about principally the General Welfare Clause. The overarching principle for both of these clauses can be summed up in this idea. Neither clause authorizes the sharing of concurrent jurisdiction between the federal government and the states. Each is an exclusive grant of power. And that leads to a very simple set of rules. If the states can spend money on a topic, then the federal government cannot spend money on that same topic. If the federal government can regulate activity under the Commerce Clause, then the states cannot regulate that activity at all. But the converse is also true. If the activity is something that the states can regulate legitimately under the Constitution, then the Commerce Clause grants no power at all to the federal government on that subject matter. So let's review some of the more important details now that you understand the framework. The realistic modern view of the, commerce, the general welfare clause regular, rather, 
from the Supreme Court and from the way Congress practices it is this. Congress can spend money on any fool thing it wants. That's the real rule of the general welfare clause. There are no limits on congressional spending power. This view has emerged from the 1936 case of United States versus Butler. In that case, the Supreme Court faced the most important fiscal decision ever made by that body. The case involved the Agricultural Adjustment Act, which was the forerunner of our modern farm subsidy programs. Congress justified the taxing and spending for this purpose under the General Welfare Clause. And the precise legal issue before the Supreme Court was this, whether the General Welfare Clause was a separate grant of spending power, as Alexander Hamilton argued, or whether it was a mere summation of the other enumerated powers of Congress, as James Madison argued. In other words, can Congress spend money for purposes beyond its enumerated powers? That's another way of asking the same exact question. In a remarkably short discussion, it's actually about that much of a page, about three inches on a page, the Supreme Court sided with Hamilton without anything like a proper explanation of the basis for the decision. It's almost like the Supreme Court was too busy to give us their full answer. I've long wondered, or actually I had long wondered, what information the court had before it to convince him to follow the Hamilton view rather than the Madison view. About four years ago, Patrick Henry College acquired a database of all the briefs and records of the Supreme Court cases for about 100 years. And the second case I downloaded all the records for was the Butler case, because I just wanted to know this for a long time. There was only one brief filed on the historical issues. It was by the FDR Justice Department. It was fascinating. I read that not only, I knew parts of what they said. Uh, Madison had company in holding his view of, of a limited view of the general welfare clause. Thomas Jefferson held the same view. But I also learned that Hamilton had company as well. George Washington supported the Hamilton view, and so did uh, uh, Monroe. He supported the Hamilton view. And then they went a little deeper in history and said that um, Daniel Webster supported the Hamilton view. And the one that just floored me was John C. Calhoun. John C. Calhoun, or so this brief said, supported the Hamilton view, which has been interpreted to mean the federal government can spend money on any fool thing it wants. I just knew there was something wrong. You know, John C. Calhoun, the great states' right advocate, would not have believed that. So I drilled down to their original sources and looked them all up and read them in context. And they were right. John C. Calhoun did support the Hamilton view. But what was misrepresented, misrepresented was Hamilton's view. Hamilton's view, and you can find it in detail in Joseph Story's commentaries on the Constitution, was this. The federal, and it stems from the very first resolution passed at the Constitutional Convention. The federal government was being given power only where the areas where the states were jurisdictionally incompetent. So the Hamilton view of the General Welfare Clause is this. States can pass laws, or excuse me, the federal government can tax and spend for purposes beyond the enumerated, other enumerated powers provided two things. Congress concludes that it's in the national interest and not a local interest and not somebody's personal interest and that the states have no jurisdiction to spend money on that topic. So it's really simple to figure out how you apply this. And that would make sense with John C. Calhoun's view. Can the states spend money on education? Well, yes. Can the federal government? No. Can the states spend money on welfare? Yes. 
Can the federal government? No. Can the state spend money on health care? Yes. Can the federal government? No. Anything that the states have jurisdiction to spend money on, the federal government cannot spend money on it under the Hamilton view. And everybody knows they couldn't do it under the Madison view. There's only two examples in all of US history where there's a practical difference in the outcome between Hamilton and Madison. One is purchases, like the Louisiana Purchase, the Gadsden Purchase, the Alaska Purchase. When the federal government bought land that, to expand the, the United States, Jefferson, holding to that view, thought it was unconstitutional, but he did it anyway because it's so important. But under the Hamilton view, it was perfectly constitutional because it was for the national interest and it was something the states couldn't do. The states couldn't buy territory from a foreign country to expand the United States. That's the Hamilton explanation. The other is the space program. There's no enumerated power that would justify the space program. But I think pretty clearly it fits the general welfare clause. It is for the national interest and it's something the states cannot do. So there you have it. It's a really simple rule. And that's the overarching plan of the federal government. The Commerce Clause, by the way, means the same thing in reverse. If the states can regulate it, the federal government can't. The states but, you know, can regulate banking. The Uniform Commercial Code, Article 2 and 3, of, regulates banking. The federal government can't regulate banking, not under the Commerce Clause anyway, because Commerce Clause is a grant of exclusive power. If, the, if, if it's commerce clause, the states can't regulate it at all. So what we learn, banking's not commerce. Commerce is shipping stuff. The, the FAA is a legitimate commerce clause power. Planes across state lines, that's commerce. Greyhound buses across state lines, trucking across state lines. It's shipping stuff, that's it. Not manufacturing, not mining, not banking, not all things economic. That's the states. Commerce is the exclusive power of the federal government to make sure that we don't get in trade wars with each other on shipping across state lines. That is exclusively the power. There is no current jurisdiction on any amendment in the US, or any subject in the US Constitution that I know of except one. The 21st Amendment gives Congress and, and, and the states concurrent jurisdiction on the regulation of alcohol. Otherwise, it's either the federal government or the states. And if the states can regulate it, the Congress cannot. That's the rule that we, sh we should have. Now, we need to fix the broad constitutional language that the Supreme Court has declared in that case I quoted to you from that says it's broad enough for the federal government to grow beyond the intentions of the founders and change the language so that there's no longer any wiggle room. Similarly, the commerce, uh, the solutions here for both of these areas are a constitutional amendment saying very specifically, Congress cannot regulate any activity or spend money for any purpose that's not within their own legitimate subject matter and the states are in possession of all the legitimate subject matter of the domestic areas except those explicitly enumerated things that are in the text of the Constitution. All of these rules, if we do these correctly, if we follow the original meaning and adopt new constitutional language to reinstitute the original meaning, we don't have unfunded mandates from the states. We don't have mandates on the states at all. None, zero, zip. Every bit of that is unconstitutional. As a matter of political theory, 
It is a denial of the Republican form of government to have federal mandates. Because the voters of, of California, New York, and Massachusetts, let's say, can get together and pull a few other people out of out a certain group of states. And those voters can put people in Congress that put mandates on all the other states. And the people that you represent aren't represented in those elections. It is a denial of a Republican form of government because only the people who are uh, uh, you are responsible to should be the voters of your state. You should not have to implement the will of the voters of any other state. And all federal mandates violate the principle of a Republican form of government because you're being forced to implement the, the will of voters from other states. We've got to stop this denial of the basic theory of self, American self-government. Now, if we would just fix those particular things, the nation would be changed. But there, there are other things we could do. We could stop the abuse of the federal regulatory process. All laws are supposed to be passed by Congress, not by the bureaucrats. They should have no power to enact regulations. None, zero, zip, none. Uh, not a runaway regulation. No regulations that control private property or private land. Executive orders are out of control. There's all manner of things that we could, we could, we could do. Um, if we had a, a, an Article V Convention of the States, to restrict the power of the federal government, which is what we're calling for. An Article 8 of this booklet, uh, the Convention of the States booklet um, that we've given you here from Citizens for Self-Governance, there is the draft uh, uh, application for an Article 5 Convention of the States that I drafted and Rob Nadelson, who will follow me, has edited and helped me with. The, um, and the rule of germaneness that is embedded in here says that any amendment, whether it's a balanced budget amendment, a tax limitation amendment, an exclusive jurisdiction amendment that stops all this misuse of the Commerce Clause and the General Welfare Clause, stops regulatory abuse, all these other things, all of that would be germane. Mark Levin is, is announcing a new book. He's, he's coming out next week. I've seen an advanced copy of it. He has 10, 11 amendments. 10 of his amendments would be germane under our application. The balanced budget amendment, all the amendments of the Article V community is pro are promoting today would be germane under this application. And we, we go to the floor of the convention, we debate these, we s see which ones get a majority of the states to support in an Article V convention of the states. We go back, then 38 states ratify. It is a state-controlled process. The states vote as states in such a convention. And what's been missing from this and what we intend to bring to this is the grassroots mobilization that needs to put this over the top. It, the Article V efforts that have gone to, um, to the floor for votes so far have faced an inappropriate amount of political opposition without a countervailing public groundswell of support for the process of a convention of the states, the process of using Article 5 to overcome the power of the federal government. And frankly, it's misinformed fear about the founding fathers that's driving this. In your booklet is an article that I've written on the historical fallacy that the original Constitution was a runaway convention. It's just not true. It is not true. It is an anti-historical argument always made by the enemies of the Constitution. And I just don't get the logic of people saying, we don't want to, uh, to use Article 5 because it might destroy our precious Constitution, which, by the way, our precious Constitution was illegally adopted. Well, 
if they don't like the Constitution, if it was illegally adopted, why is it precious? Our Constitution was not illegally adopted, and we need to use the Constitution to save the nation. And the Constitution gives uh, you all, as state legislators, that power. Citizens for Self-Governance in our Convention of the States process is going to build a grassroots network. I've been building grassroots networks through the homeschooling community for 30 plus years. I know how to build grassroots networks. We're going to have 3,000 legislative district captains. That's 75% of the districts in the 40 states that we're targeting. There are a few states, we're going to be accepting help in all states, but there are a few states that are not really viable targets. Massachusetts, California, you, you get the idea. But in 40 states, we're going to have uh, uh, district captains in 75% of your districts. That's 3,000 captains. We're going to have at least 100 supporters of the Convention of the States in each of those 3,000 districts. We're going to have at least 25 people from every one of those 75% of the districts that will volunteer to show up at the legislative hearings. And so if the other side produces 100 against the Convention of the States, we're going to have 1,000 or 2,000. And uh, we're going to make sure that our people understand the importance of volunteering for the campaigns of legislators that will vote and support a convention of the states or candidates opposing those who vote against the convention of the states. We are going to make sure that people who stand up for liberty on this issue, we're going to have your back. We're going to have your back with volunteers. We're going to have you back with bundling operations. We're going to have your back. And so we're going to bring the grassroots organizational technique that has made the Tea Party movement with Mark and the homeschooling movement that I've had a part in for 30 years. And you all know that we know how to organize and we know how to turn out the grassroots. We're going to do it for this. And we're going to make sure that the public is educated and that when the public is educated and turned out, they're going to stand up, they're going to speak up, and they're going to back you when you lead. This is a chance for state legislators to do the most important thing that has ever been done in at least 100 years in this country. Win back our liberty. And I think that does. Last week I gave a, sp a speech on this in the Allegheny Mountains. A 10-year-old girl raised her hand when I was done and said, what can I do to help? And I said, you could be my biggest asset. I need you to go look every adult you know in the eye and say this, why should I spend half or more of my family income for all of my life paying for things you're buying for yourselves today? What moral justification can you give for stealing my liberty for this purpose? You go look them in the eye and tell them the only thing we can do to stop Washington, D.C. is to call a convention of the states. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to unleash an army of 10-year-olds in this country through the homeschooling movement. And you know good and well we can get them, we can train them, and they are going to look people in the eye and say, we deserve to have liberty too. The Constitution says our duty was to preserve liberty for ourselves and our posterity. There is no constitutional basis for mandates from the federal government to the states. There is a complete constitutional basis for the states mandating the federal government to stop the runaway abuses of power. Thank you very much. Check out more content at conventionofstates.com slash pod. Thank you for listening.